welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Hello, this is Buddy C. Welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. Today we have Marla and Lou and Todd and Craig. Welcome, everyone. We are expecting Sensei today, but we're going to go ahead and get started, and hopefully he'll chime in in a minute. We're talking about the 11th verse of the Tao Te Ching today. Any announcements before we get started? I do want to mention our nightly 9 p.m. Eastern online meeting of AA. We had someone this week at the meeting because of the podcast. So, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, join us sometime. That link is zoomaameetings.com. Goes directly to the meeting. Uh, have those links in the podcast notes along with the link for the Dow Facebook group where you're welcome to come and talk about what we've discussed in the podcasts and anything else related to recovery or Taoist thought or higher power or emptiness, which we'll be talking about today, I'm sure, with the 11th verse. So good to have you guys. Um, Marley, you want to read for us, ma'am? Sure. Um, 11th verse. 30 spokes converge upon a single hub. It is on the hole in the center that the use of the cart hinges. Shape clay into a vessel. It is the space within that makes it useful. Carve fine doors and windows, but the room is useful in its emptiness. The usefulness of what is depends on what is not. Hmm. Thoughts? I also posted the... um, multi-verse link that has all of the different verses there. The space within that makes it useful. So the usefulness depends on what is not, not what is. I always think of usefulness as in what is there. Right. Always. What can you grab? Yeah. What, what's useful? You know, you, like you need to hold on to something for it to be useful. Like it needs to be tangible. Yeah. Like what if we were, when we were talking earlier, what if silence is really useful? There's nothing there but silence. Hmm. hmm. I had this with a sponsee earlier on this week and he was going on about his, his wife and how she's, all the time and how he's going back to it and I'm kind of saying like sometimes the best thing to say is nothing it leaves you more open and more receptive to what your wife's trying to get, get across to you rather than both of you having these barriers up and just kind of at loggerheads constantly with each other like having that emptiness in a relationship just that it's, it's almost like an availability for each other as well like you have to shut up to listen to me, no, not you specifically, but right. Sorry, I, I thought this was another thing of me. Just, yeah, just it seems to be have a dig at Craig D. <laughs> it's not, oh no, I didn't mean it. Uh, <laughs> I meant it as a general kind of thing, like that's you know, I meant it as a general. It reminds me, I took a mindfulness writing class when I lived in. Um, in Berkeley, and the hardest um, exercise wasn't in writing, it was in listening. And we had this exercise where you had to do this sort of stream of consciousness and write for five minutes, could write about anything you want to, which was sort of typical for that class. But then when you were done, you had to read it to your neighbor. And when you were the listener, you weren't allowed to do anything. You couldn't nod your head. You couldn't shake your head in agreement. You couldn't like nod approval or like, oh yeah. 
And then at the very end, the only thing you could say was thank you. And that was the most difficult thing to do and probably learned the most from that because you had to be empty. Like you just had to be there fully present with them, listening to them. Not all of the things that it was triggering as they were reading their story about when they were a little kid or they went on a car ride or whatever the story was, because we're always trying to figure out how to get our point across with whatever they're saying. So I think to me, it's very similar with this is, is trying to be fully present in many ways. In my mind, that's what it means is to be empty, to only be with whatever is happening in front of us at the time, which is very difficult to do. We work with being and non-being is what we use. Mm. Okay, here's a cup. I want to talk about the qualities of a cup. Okay. Um, let's say you were this, this cup here. I've got a whole list of things. And this is talking about the emptiness of a cup is what makes the cup useful. Okay. It's interesting how a cup does not decide what you put in it. Um, the more empty it is, the more useful it is, the more you can do with it. If it's dirty, it's less useful. Uh, a cup has no say in what's written on it, how it's used, or who uses it, when it's used where it goes or who forgets about it a cup is just as much a cup if it sits up in the cabinets never used it's still a cup uh, a cup has no say at all as to how it's used or, or if it's even used at all uh, i was thinking about us as our acceptance of being the cup can just be. Um, even if a cup is used for something other than its original purpose or what uh, or what you would think it would be used for, it's still a cup and it's still useful. Um, like if I took this cup and went out and put nuts and bolts in it, which I have done with cups before, it's still just as much a cup. Like we don't understand our purposes or what we're used for. In other words, I'm relating this to what to us personally. Uh, a cup can't empty itself and it can't fill itself. A flawed cup is still a cup. A cup has no responsibility other than just to be a cup. <laughs> A cup can't fix itself. Is a chipped cup still a cup? Of course. Yeah. It's flawed. It's flawed, but it's still useful. Yeah. How about this one? A cup has no judgment. It doesn't judge what's put in it. It's <laughs> true. Or what it's used for. It doesn't drink. It doesn't judge who drinks out of it. No, it doesn't, does it? It doesn't spill on someone it doesn't like. If a cup influences what's in it, a lot of times it's defective and thrown away. I had a friend that used to heat her uh, water up in her cup for her tea. And she found out that the poisons, there were poisons coming into her water from her cup because it was a pottery cup. So she could no longer use it. So the cup, that was influencing what it was being used for, the, what was in it, could no longer be used for that purpose. It could have another purpose. So are you saying that the Tao is asking us to be more like an empty vessel, an empty cup? More, more like a cup, yes, where we just accept ourselves the way we are. There's sensei. Without judgment. Without judgment. Mm -hmm. Hallelujah. The cup's purpose is just to be a cup. Sensei. Uh, sorry to be so late. I, I I was waiting for a link to be sent from you, and I had to dig it out. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I emailed it to you earlier today. Yeah, I finally found it, but it said oh. podcast. It didn't. Oh, okay. I said podcast. 
threw me off. Welcome. Um, Welcome. Anyways, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We were just talking about the 11th verse Psalm. Yep. I've read both uh, Dr. Dwyer, Dyer and Jonathan Starr's renditions. I'm very interested in Zen's idea. We talk about emptiness a lot. Right. And, and I'm, I'm very curious to your comments on this in relation to. Okay. The emptiness we were we were just talking about uh, we had read the verse and had been talking about uh using a cup as an example of uh of being yep. empty and um and yep. the usefulness of a cup versus uh to get some ideas around that so um, yep. empty your cup as they say right the famous story of the general who visits the priest as the zen master as these stories go, and the Zen master makes tea for him. That was the custom. You make a cup of tea and pour a cup of tea. So uh, while he's doing that, the general talks and talks and talks about his understanding of Zen. It goes on and on and on and on. And so as the uh, as he's pouring the tea, first he pours, pours his bowl first. The, their cups didn't have handles. They were like a Depending on the size, they had different sized tea bowls. Um, and as the as the uh, cup fills up to the brim, he just keeps pouring and it starts running over. You've all, I think you've heard the story. And the general says, "Stop! Stop! Can't you see the cup is full? It's running over." So the Zen master says, "Like this teacup, your cup is full." And you know you have to empty it so I can put something in. Um, I found uh, Wayne Dyer's commentary a little new agey and uh, some sort of um, warm and fuzzy ideas. I don't object to it uh, at all. And I know what he's doing with his format in this book. It's like a self-help book and trying to do the Tao now. That's kind of like my try this chapters in my little book. So, um, but when we start talking about the love at the center of things and the, it starts sounding rather Christian or rather poetic. And I know of only one verse in which the word love is used in Buddhism. That's the Metta Sutta. It's the line that says, suffusing love over the entire world above, below, and all around without limit. But that's kind of like um, a translator's choice. I mean, I, who knows what the original word was? Um, so somebody said, there was a long time ago I read this. He said, uh, what is this emptiness? And he said, uh, usually we mean something is empty of something. He said, so when you drink a cup of tea, he used the same same example. He said the cup is empty of the tea. Of course, we now we know now the cup is full of air. Um, so it's a symbolic example of what we could call emptiness, but it's kind of a stretch to make that model fit uh, Zen's idea of emptiness. Emptiness is set against form. Um, and here is a form of emptiness, which is dictated by form. And it does make the teacup useful. And it does make the wheel useful uh, to rotate around the spoke, so or the axle and so forth. But emptiness, uh, when we say form and is emptiness, emptiness is form, which is the famous formulation in the Heart Sutra, Buddha's teaching. I think for modern people, it's a little better to think of it more like E equals MC squared, energy and matter. Uh, matter is mostly energy, or matter is energy. Uh, we don't say energy is matter. 
you have you particle physicists get down to <laughs> nits and nats, right? And they're saying a particle of light can behave as a wave or as a particle. So it, a particle is what we associate with matter. It's a, a thing, you know, it's like a, the closest uh, model we have to it is a sphere. It's a tiny little sphere, a particle. That's the way we think of it anyway. So uh, I don't want to slip down the slippery slope of trying to glamorize or formalize a discussion around Zen by including physics and science and all that. That's a little bit too heady and too intellectual. We all, we all enjoy that kind of speculation. And I think there's um, definitely a convergence between the findings of science and, and those of Buddhism. But uh, sometimes the discussions become a little too intellectual along that line. So what I mean by matter and energy and form and emptiness and, and the legitimacy of that comparison is that in the days of Buddha and Dogen and the others in Zen and in China with Taoism, they did not have the benefit, if, that, if that's the way you want to think of it, of science that we have. So, for instance, in the Shurangama Sutra, the Buddha says, Ananda, he's talking to Ananda. And uh, the Shurangama Sutra is unique in that it sort of walks you through the five skandhas as stages of meditation. That's a, that's a corollary that's usually not drawn, but he does a very good job of it. And he also talks about how the mind is like the senses. The senses are not limited by their objects. And so the mind is not limited by the senses, et cetera, that kind of thing. They're working on intuition. They didn't have, um, you know, electron microscopes, and they didn't have all this scientific evidence, if you want to call it that, that we now have. So he goes to Ananda and says, uh, Ananda is his sort of whipping boy in this talk. Uh, and he says, uh, Ananda, uh, how did he put it? He said, um, space, and space would be um, an, um, a placeholder for emptiness. Space is set up against uh, stuff, you know, form. So space cannot enter. Uh, objects. Buddha says this. Today, any kid in high school would raise his hand in the back of the room and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about, you know, matter and energy? This laptop sitting in front of me seems very solid, but we know now, I mean, we have information that tells us that it's more space than stuff. You can't put your finger through it, but that's a, that's a whole other issue. So when Buddha says this, you could criticize it as being ignorant. But you have to realize that if you lived in those days, you would be equally ignorant. You wouldn't know any, you wouldn't know what we know now either. And so we have to give the benefit of the doubt to these wonderful teachings that we've inherited from so long ago. And remember, they didn't have electricity, they didn't have plumbing, they didn't have you know, just go down the list. Um, so when they were giving these talks where they were calling upon what we would today call kind of scientific concepts, they had biology. They knew, he talks about the fetus and how the fetus develops in the womb. So, you know, they had to do, they had to do dissection of corpses and things. They had, you know, they, they knew a lot. But as some of you know, in some cases, they would they would open up a corpse and they, the brains, they didn't know what the brain was for. It was this weird, pulpy, snotty clump of stuff, you know. So um, when he says form is emptiness, emptiness is form, he is speaking more of a very broad general concept it's not exactly like matter and energy. Matter and energy is a more highly sophisticated and specified concept that Einstein quantified. I mean, he quantified it. Um, so form is emptiness in this sense. And as Okamura Roshi says, when you say form, you're already saying emptiness. When you say emptiness, you're already saying form. They can't be divided. You can't, you can't put them on two sides of an equal sign say form equals emptiness. It's not like that. 
So the form is the manifestation of something as it is in present reality. It's also called appearance. And so the way we see things, the way we feel things, hear things, touch things, that's all in the realm of form. And that's the first skanda. So everybody starts sitting in meditations, begins sitting in form. Eventually, through sensory adaptation, the natural kind of process of things breaking down, we enter into this kind of sensation, then into this kind of perception and so forth. Uh, Buddha uses this as a very effective model of the sort of staging of what you go through when you do meditation. But form, um, everything in the universe, including the smallest particle, and, and they, they use that language 2,500 years ago. They had the concept of the atom. And it was, it was a very simple concept, as I get it. Buddha was asked, somebody said, you can cut something in half. And then you can cut the half in half. And then you can cut the half of that in half and the half of that. And so cut, 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 until finally you're down to the last particle of whatever that was, a cookie or whatever, you know. And they, and they asked Buddha, they said, when you cut that in half, what is it? And he said, then you're right on the edge of form and emptiness. So they had this idea that somehow matter could break down, all this stuff could break down, you know, to just cutting food, carrots and stuff to eat. You know, you can see that I could keep cutting this in half forever, you know. But then what, what would be left? Where, what would I get it down to? So they had their their concepts were relatively simple construction like that, but you can see how profound they are from an intuitive perspective. So form is matter, is the material world, is the appearance of it, the way it smells, tastes, touch, and feels. It's and we know now we would call taste and touch chemical, chemical forms. Uh the part of the electromagnetic spectrum that we receive through the eyes is very high frequency light. The part that we receive through the ears is lower frequency sound waves in the medium of the air or the water from a swimming pool in the water and so forth. So we understand this in a much more say complex way. And we have a, a, a very different pattern for it than, than they had access to in those days. So they described emptiness in ways that you would experience. And uh, a conjecture would be that what, you know, when you cut something down all the way and you have the last particle and you cut that in half, that's a conjecture. What is that? And that's where Buddha answered, that's when you move from, you're right on the edge of form and emptiness. So they would say the emptiness of that which never was. Horns on a rabbit, hair on a tortoise. And Buddha, Buddha would use examples like that. Uh, in Matsuoka Roshi's description of the process of 360 degree Zazen, you go start at zero where everything is, quote, normal. You go to 90 degrees, everything becomes sort of hyper real. At 180 degrees, there's a kind of insight into the underlying unity. 270 degrees, he called imagination thinking, where you've been freed of your habitual way of inhib inhibitions and ways of thinking. So horns on a rabbit, hair on a tortoise become possible for you as an imagine imaginary thing. And today, genetically, we can tweak, you know, they, they make rabbits glow in the dark now <laughs> with genetic manipulation. So uh, horns on a rabbit and hair on a tortoise probably now possible genetically but in those days they weren't so then another form of emptiness is that the emptiness of one thing in another that there's no cow in a horse and there's no horse in a cow today of course we could demonstrate that the chemistry molecular constituents and so forth are very very similar and the, the difference would be determined mainly by genetic code small differences in the genetic code. They say we even share 90, 99% of earthworm DNA. But then, you know, they'd say there is no car, cow in this horse and there's no horse in this cow. So that's the emptiness of the one thing being in the other. 
And in a way, it substantiates this creature called a cow and this creature called a horse as unique in the, and, and real. Then there's the emptiness of that which you imagine but is not real. In those days, snakes were very dangerous, poisonous snakes in India still are. And uh, the example they used was uh, you're in a darkened room. Of course, they didn't have electricity. And you, you react to what you think is a snake in the corner. You see a snake. And then with a candle on further examination, you see it's a rope coiled up. But your reaction to it was just as real. So that would be akin to something like PTSD today, where, where uh, you know, you pick up cues in the environment and you go into a panic attack because you've been raped or mugged or robbed or you've been in Vietnam or whatever. And uh, you have this reaction that takes over your reality. So emptiness was described in different ways like that. And uh, there were five classical versions of emptiness. The fifth one is the one that Zen sort of leans on as sort of the ultimate, you might say. There are all these confused misperceptions of emptiness that I've just listed. But uh, somebody wrote about this and they said the emptiness of the teacup, you know, when you drink this tea out, it's empty of. He said, so what is this Zen emptiness? And he said, the closest I can think uh, come to conclusion there it's being empty of a separate self. Nothing has a separate self. Everything is all interconnected. And uh, in fact, uh, Wayne Dyer on the second page there, he uses the metaphor of the, uh, of the chariot. And uh, that was Buddha. He doesn't attribute it to Buddha, but Buddha said like a chariot, when you take the constructed self apart, and you just have all of its constituencies, form, feeling, thought, impulse, consciousness, the four elements, the, the datus, the, the organ of the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, and their objects, etc. Those are all the constituents. So when you take them all apart and you lay them out on the ground, where is the chariot? The chariot consists only in the assembly. And so he was, he was saying that we're like that. According to his testimony, he found no Atman, no soul, no self-identified separate self in the middle of all of that. When this all comes apart, it just comes apart, and there's no there there in the middle. And so this is how he didn't why and how he denied the Atman concept of Hinduism, the Hindu concept of a soul or a self inhabiting this body and then reincarnating, transferring transmigrating to another body, future lives. And so he said, that that doesn't happen, can't happen. So his teaching was unpopular. He knew it'd be against the current because everybody wants to believe in eternal soul and all of that. It wasn't a Christian soul. Christianity did not exist at that time. And their concept is slightly different. So he said, the emptiness of a separate self now, another way to look at it, which is easy for us to accept and embrace, looking at the universe outside ourselves, is that everything is changing. The marks of dukkha, which we generally translate as suffering, which I think is a very poor translation, uh, it means suffering like by attrition or change. Galaxies colliding is dukkha. It's change. We as human beings get caught up in it and we take it personally. But dukkha is really a universal principle. It's not a personal human principle of just of just emotional suffering, angst, angst, existential angst, and you know, pain and, and aging, although he talks about that a lot because he's a human being talking to humans. So he's describing this um and the, the marks of it are impermanence, insubstantiality, imperfection. So he's saying all things are like this. Uh, we're not singled out for special punishment. We're just part of the mix. So that kind of emptiness means emptiness is the actual living dynamic of the way reality works. Form is the part that we 
capture and try to hold on to, like a freeze frame. It's a snapshot. So Nagarjuna was 14th in India, 14th ancestor, and he was very brilliant and he did debates and things. And he said, enlightenment or insight, awakening, is seeing into the flux, seeing into the flux of arising, abiding, changing, and decaying. So we can accept that about the universe. We say, yeah, I see, that's, you know, everything is changing. The mountains don't change in the same frequency as the forest on the mountains, right? The forest, autumn comes and the leaves turn and so forth, and the mountain seems to stay the same. But Dogen said mountains are always walking. Now, again, we know with sub, you know, plate tectonics and all of that, we know everything is even the magma, the crust, and everything on the planet is constantly in motion. But it's very subtle. We can't perceive it. So that's the other form of emptiness is that it is what it seems to be now, and it is real in that sense. But it's not whether it's real or not is not the question in Zen. The question is, how does it exist? And everything exists by virtue of impermanence or emptiness. If everything wasn't changing, theoretically, nothing could exist. You can't have anything exist that does not change. So these were the kind of, that's the kind of level the argument got to. Yeah. Where does, okay, in our everyday life, we can, from what I can see, we can approach uh, in practical application, approaching well, a situation, is there? Does, does it's, I'm not sure that there's a satisfactory answer to that. As I said, it's you know physics science tries to describe a and quote unquote objective truth, an objective universe. This is how it is. Take it or leave it. Too bad, you know, if you don't like it. What we don't like is when the moving finger turns and points at us and says, you too are impermanent. You know, wait a minute. No, no, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to be with God in it for eternity. You know, I mean, those beliefs are really reflective of needs that people really have to be permanent, to be eternal and so forth, or feel like they are at least. So that's where it gets personal and uncomfortable and squeamish and so forth. Uh, So applying this to daily life, my theory is that if you sit in Zazen, you can think of it as speeding up or slowing down to the present moment. And it's not just hanging in the present moment. This is called the Zen sickness of falling into the moment. But it's seeing it in flux, as Nagarjuna said. It's constantly changing. And when we see, it's like a chameleon uh, or a kaleidoscope. If you sit still enough for long enough, you begin to see change, even though you're just sitting there. People report seeing light and color and movement in their field of vision. They hear sounds that they're not, they don't typically hear, and it's just like a cacophony, like a dissonant chord. It's constant and constantly shifting and changing. And then the body sensations are like that. After a while, there's a process of adaptation where it all starts to sort of merge and become transsensory and so forth. And this is very thoroughly described in many of the teachings. But one of the aspects, it seems, of awakening to what is called the Bodhi mind or the Buddha mind, your original mind, is that it's very dynamic. It's, it's, everything is moving. Everything is living. Everything is alive. Buddha even taught that the monkey mind, chitta, discriminating mind, imposes a false stillness on reality. So we kind of keep it down to a dull roar. And this is an intuitive instinctual survival thing. You have to know whether an animal is attacking you, charging you, or running away from you, for instance, for survival reasons. So everything is like that. 
if if you don't have stillness, you cannot perceive motion. So what Freud called the oceanic awareness of the infant in the crib was like just the sea of data, you know, sensory data flowing, and, and the, the baby can't sort anything out from anything. Eventually, it learns to recognize its mother's face and starts sorting mom out from the background and starts sorting itself out from the crib and so forth. That's called individuation. And that's how we develop a sense of self, a sense of a separate self, which in Zen is considered a category error. It's a necessary thing to develop as an individual who's going to survive. But we forget the other side of the story is that actually it's all connected and blah, blah, blah. So my theory is that when we sit in Zazen, because we sit still enough, long enough, which is very unnatural for a mammal to do, unless it's hunting. If you're hunting, you have to do that. Everything reverses. It goes through a kind of regression back to a childlike or even the you know, crib-like oceanic awareness. Psychedelic drugs do the same kind of thing. They shut the filters down. Uh, that are that are filtering everything out and keeping everything still. That's one of the theories that came out in the 60s, that all they're doing, they're not adding anything. They just shut down all those filters that have been holding everything steady for you. And now all of a sudden you're like, ooh, look at my hand. <laughs> so <laughs> it's uh, so I don't, I don't think what we're going through is unnatural and Right. Matsuoka Roshi warned against psychedelics. He said, if you take a drug, he said, you can't deny the similarity in the descriptions of that in Kensho. But he said, if you take a pill, you may not be ready for what happens. In Zazen, you will be ready for whatever happens. So I think that's what it is. I think it's just simply re- regressing to, or refuge means returning to. So we're taking refuge in Buddha, which is our original awakened mind. And it has that very dynamic nature to it. Any uh, all the gates open up. Yeah. Any questions for Sensei? Sounds like empty, emptiness is a very busy place. Yeah, it's very full. It's it's the central realm of the densely packed. <laughs> they call it in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. <laughs> it's very, very dense. But that's what the physicists say about outer space is not empty. You know, it's it's energetic, and you have virtual particles arising and and disappearing. Guys, y'all are quiet today. But to, and I'm sorry I didn't get your name, Lou. But to respond to that question a little bit, it's a very dynamic place. But it's uh, it's addressed by the term mokurai. It's a Chinese Sino-Japanese term, mokurai. Since I used a lot, it, it has different meanings. We use a uh, part of it like uh, silence is thunder, and so we call our um, our order the silent thunder order. It also means stillness in motion, motion in stillness. So it's kind of like a resolution of opposites. It's paradox. In the light there is dark. In the light there is dark. Say it again. It's paradoxical. That's what I yeah, think. Se- seemingly paradoxical. Yeah. But as Sensei would often say, there's no dichotomy in Zen. The dichotomy is in our mind. Right, right. It's like the empty, empty, um, the empty cup. We think of it as empty of tea, but it's also empty of an elephant. It's, it's empty of exactly. It's, yep. You know, you, you can't name you, right. you can't name the number of things that it's empty of. Yeah, and as some great master said, it's already broken. The teacup is already broken. When it, once it's broken, it's no longer a teacup. So it isn't what it was, and it is not what it will be. It's just what it is in the present moment. And that's called its dharma location, the specificity of it. And nothing else occupies that particular space-time reality. So it's real in that sense. But back to your questions, restate your question, Lou. Or your comment, the first comment. I don't know if I can, Sensei. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it's just that um, you know you tend to think of quieting the mind, and, and yeah, that's what I wanted to get at with Mokurai. 
So mokarai means stillness in motion, motion in stillness. Uh, one line in the famous Chinese poem, the Xinxing Ming, uh, Trust in Mind, uh, says, uh, no comparisons. I probably quoted this for you before, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself. No comparisons or analogies are possible in this causeless, relationless state. Take motion and stillness and stillness and motion. Both movement and stillness disappear. When such duality cease to exist, oneness itself cannot exist. To this ultimate finality, no law or description applies. So they're using words to kind of reductio ad absurdum, reduce this down to something that cannot be said, but can be pointed at as kind of a singularity of reality. So the words can just circle around it. They can't mm-hmm. get it, get mm-hmm. at it. But you can experience it. And I was asked this question last Sunday. We did what we call Dharma Combat Sunday morning. And our practice leader from um, Jacksonville said, do you really think that we can experience this non-duality that Zen points at? And I said, it depends on what you mean by experience. If you're willing to allow that, as Master Dogen said, in stillness, mind and object merge in realization and go beyond enlightenment as an experience. You'd have to say when mind and object merge, there's no longer any subject-object duality. So there can be no subject perceiving an object. Can that be experience if there isn't even any perception? So you could put quotes around the word experience and, you know, this can happen, but it simply does not land in the same column as what we ordinarily consider experience, which always involves a subject-object. And that's really the difference in Zazen and other forms of meditation. Zazen is uh, sometimes referred to as shikantaza. Shikantaza just means something like just precisely sitting and there's nothing else going on. In other words, it has become objectless. There is no subject perceiving an object anymore. It's merged. We don't, but we don't say it's one, as this line from the poem said, you know, uh, oneness itself cannot exist. And later on, he says, the most you can say is not two. In other words, it's, it's, we're, we're experiencing things, yes, subject and object, and you're you and I'm me and we're not the same. Uh, right now, we're perceive, experiencing kind of a, an analog or something here through this digital interface. You know, there's a little time lag. But even if you and I were sitting in the same room, there's still a little time lag mm-hmm. for the light to bounce off of you and get to my retina and get to my brain. Is very, very minute, but the point is we never really see even each other. So it gets down into the nitty-gritty. Well, into the... It's true. I mean... Into the, into the limits of our biology, too, right? So it's like Schrodinger's cat. It's, you know, Schrodinger's right. story, the cat's alive um, and dead at the same time in the box. And you don't know until you look at it, which one it is. And it's dependent upon who's looking at it, too. Right, right. And we don't look at it and see both it dead and alive at the same time because we don't. Our mechanism doesn't allow us to do that. Right. One of the guys was talking about that. And he's a he's a molecular biologist. He lives in Newfoundland, and I talk with him each week. And he, he told this joke about Schrodinger's cat. That Schrodinger is driving with his physicist friend, and they get pulled over by the cops. And and the cop comes and comes to the window and says, do you know how fast you were driving? He says, no, but I know where I am. <laughs> so, the cop, <laughs> so the cop is suspicious, you know. And so he goes and opens a trunk. <laughs> And he says, did you know you have a dead cat in here? <laughs> he said, I told you not to open the trunk. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, may not, it may not matter to him, but it matters to the cat too, right? It matters to the cat. So 
into on the intuitive level, I think uh, when they speak of form and emptiness and so on, it's a little bit like the philosophical pairing of uh, noumenon and phenomena. Phenomena are the many. Noumenon is the one running through everything. And noumenon sometimes is thought of as the absolute essence of a thing. But the reason it's used in the singular fashion in Yogacara and other forms of debate is because, in a sense, it has to be considered the same for everything. And this uh, same poem, toward the end, he goes into uh, understanding the this one essence, you are released from all entanglement. One essence is hyphenated. So I think that's equivalent, an ancient equivalent to what we now philosophically call noumenon. You know, the thing in itself or the essence of the thing. And that is, in a sense, has to be, or as, as a concept, it's the same for everything. So modern physics and chemistry and all of this, we we get a better handle around that, I think, because if you break any material goods down, it will eventually, you know, particle decay and it will come apart into, it will eventually dissolve into quarks and whatever else particles we're going to find on there. And none of them are really particles at that point, right? They are like virtual. And so in that sense, that's what we would agree. And we would say, yeah, that's the noumenon. You know, everything basically reduces to that. They didn't know that in those days. So this was all, you know, intuitive, which is very admirable, I think. Any uh, genius, genius level. Any other questions for Sensei? How about Todd? Todd looks like he's saying something, but he's. Well, I got nothing to add. No questions. I got nothing, Todd said. <laughs> yeah, I'm just empty. I've got emptiness. Todd's got empty. emptiness. So. <laughs> What's the old uh, gospel song? I got emptiness in abundance. <laughs> <laughs> Marla, any closing comments or ideas? I'm just wrapping my head around, um, trying to wrap my head around what you said about um how everything everything has to change in order for yeah this this year's uh crop has to be harvested this year's garden has to has to die and become compost for next year's garden this generation has to die to make way for the next generation right i don't know if you're a science fiction fan but there's a lot of science fiction stories about living forever and the question comes up if even if you lived 800 years as Methuselah, you know, would you really want to? <laughs> no, I really would not want to, knowing what I, I don't think know. so. But according to Buddhism, we actually do. That is uh, the life span chapter of the Lotus Sutra is about Buddha expounding this idea that he only appears to die, but actually, life is eternal. And that's where it starts to sound like the Christian soul and eternal life and everything. Um, but he, because he says it very personal. He's very personal about it. He says, you know, I'm going to die soon, but I only appear to die. I want you, <laughs> I want you to know I'm still here, <laughs> that kind of thing. So um, we use the ocean and the wave metaphor. Mm -hmm. The waves don't last, but the ocean does. And the first principle of rebirth is that we don't go anywhere either. There's no place to go. You know, physics agrees with this. The universe is finite. I mean, there's some other theories about, you know, multiple membrane universes and so forth. But essentially, um, we were here from the beginning. And we will be here forever. There is no other place to be. According to Matsuoka, you'd ask him his age. He would say, the age of the universe. Or he would say, as old as your mind. Something like that. <laughs> so, Craig, you've been listening quietly. Did you have anything to add? 
Did you repeat all that for me? Because I, I must have blinked and missed something. Sure, yeah. <laughs> because... where, do you want, where do you want me to start? Just <laughs> listen to the podcast. I'm going to have to listen to this all over again because I was like, I, I was not expecting that out of emptiness. I cannot believe how much there is in being empty. I've got so much more work to do. I, th- I thought that I thought I was a vessel. But now I'm just realise I'm just full of so much more stuff than emptiness. Where do I where do I where do I start being empty? Now that's a good question. Where do you stop being what? Where do, where, 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 where do I start being empty? How how do I start being empty? How do I how do I let go of why would you want to? Because apparently it's a good thing. Is it not? There's no quarrel between emptiness and form. There's no conflict. He has nothing to say. That's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like you've just told. It's just it's like you've just sat me in a round room and told me to go and sit in the corner. I'm like, where do I start? <laughs> it's really that's that's really what you should do. You know, Zen is like. The old school, when you were misbehave, you you put the dunce cap on you and sent you to the corner. Well, that's what we do in Zen. We just leave the cap off. I've I've got my own cap. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> well, thank I, you I say, for being with us today. Thank wouldn't you. the answer to that be start in the center? To to um, Craig's question, how do you start becoming empty? Don't you different, start different, different schools would answer it differently. Zen says, um, hide thee thither to the cushion, you know. Uh, sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. <laughs> sit up Sit up and shut down. Or sit down and shut up. I've heard that many times. <laughs> Refuge means uh, returning to. So trust in your original mind to reveal itself. You just have to get out of the way. Sit well, still enough, long enough. Yes. It's got to happen. Well, guys, thank you for uh, a good meeting. Thank, thank you for being here today, sir. Thank, thank you. My pleasure. My Everyone pleasure. have a great week. We'll see you. Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery-related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app, daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars. Hope you put some of these resources to use and have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends in recovery.